Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 24. I very much debated about how much of this passage to get into, get into with you this morning because this passage is rich. But as I contemplated what to do here, I just felt like we needed to look at the whole body of this. So there's some more specifics I'd love to get into with you here. But just for this series, we're going to be looking at a little bit bigger chunk of Scripture, uh, verses 16 through 24. Now, if you don't know, and I told myself I wasn't going to do this, but now I'm going to. If you don't know, today is June 6th. And on this day, in 1944, the United States, along with its coalition forces, invaded Normandy, France. And there, many young men gave their lives on the shores of that sandy beach and thereby established a foothold which then spelt the death knoll of the Nazi forces in Germany. This is a big day in our history as a nation. It was a costly day. It was a turning point in that time in a war that cost many more lives, but in a war that was necessary. What we're looking at in this passage this morning is a passage that teaches us how to live free in Christ in a time of war that's not over land boundaries, that's not over resources, but over a claim to the throne of our very hearts. It's a costly war. It's a war that began long ago in the Garden of Eden. And it's a conflict that has been fought in every generation since. This is a war over our desires. A war over our priorities. A war over our very wills. One side stands in the pride of our fallen flesh. And the other side stands with the King of Glory, Jesus Christ. The turning point, just as D-Day was there in 1944, just the turning point in this conflict, which occurred about 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ made the ultimate sacrifice, being crucified himself for our sins. On that day, he made an atoning payment for sins. He, the righteous Son of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the rightful King of kings and the Lord of lords, died in agony under the weight of God's righteous and right judgment at the hands of His own people. He was buried, according to the Scriptures, in a rich man's tomb. His enemies did everything they could. They made every provision they could muster to keep him there. But on the third day, he rose in victory over the grave. The earth trembled under him, and he has now ascended to the right hand of the Father to reign and to rule until God his Father puts all of his enemies under his feet like a footstool. And the day, we wait a day on which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what has brought us here. That moment. In this time that we live in now, this time following the cross of Christ, 
humanity finds itself in the dawn of a new age and in a new and eternal kingdom. And while the defining victory has occurred, while Jesus has defeated death and sin and has delivered us from the condemnation of the law, that conflict still rages on. Like a mortally wounded bear, Satan is still a dangerous enemy. He wages a war of attrition and hatred, seeking to devour and destroy and to corrupt everything he can as he waits the day when he will be finally and fully judged. And we still live in a world that is longingly awaiting the anticipation of the day when Jesus will do what he says and that he will make all things new. Even as Jesus has transferred believers out of enslavement to our sin, out of death into life, we still face a conflict with the old ways and old desires that are still appealing to us. We're still in a fight, not to secure a victory for ourselves by our own efforts, but to live in the victory that Jesus has secured for us. Now the Galatian churches experienced that struggle, didn't they? Uh, Throughout our entire time through this letter, we have seen a church in conflict. A church in conflict over a distortion of the gospel, which is what most of this letter has been addressing. It's been more, we see, than just an outside threat. It had taken hold of the church. It was appealing to them. Not because of the way it accorded with the truth that they had received when Paul had first preached to them, when they had received it by the power of the Spirit, but rather because it appealed to their old fleshly desires. In our time in the book of Galatians, we have seen that our hope must remain fixed on the objective work of Jesus for us. That the gospel of grace calls us to faith and freedom in Christ, which calls us to live after his pattern, the pattern of his life, who calls us and who equips us to love God and to love one another. This particular set of verses that we're looking at today builds on what we were looking at last week, which is Christ's call to the church to freedom and love. Paul has important instructions for the church here, which are meant to equip us to live in the midst of this ongoing conflict that is between our old way of living, the way we were before uh, we believed, and the new creature that we are if we've been united to him by faith. This passage is equipping us and calling us, showing us how we're supposed to press in to the new identity which Jesus has given us, running the brace that's been set before us in certain hope of the crown that Christ has clinched for us. So let's begin by reading God's word together. If you would, please stand for the reading. Uh, We're going to be reading Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So how do we live as a free people in the midst of such a conflict as we find ourselves in here and now? Paul's answer and the main point of our text, the main point of this sermon is this. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. That's the key command of this entire section, and it's the main idea that links every one of these verses together. As critical as the situation in Galatia had gotten, Paul maintained a confidence in the Lord that these brothers and these sisters in Galatia would prevail over the lies that had taken hold of them. That optimism was driven by his assurance in the effectiveness of the work of Christ for us and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. At this point in the letter, Paul is pretty much done with tearing down the infectious, deadly arguments that were leading the churches in Galatia away from the true gospel of grace into a gospel of works. Now, in this section, he's rebuilding. And he's reminding the churches uh, to live the way that they were called to live. He indicates that if believers are going to prevail in this fight against sin, against the flesh, then we must continually submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So in our time this morning, what I want to do is to lay out for you three ways that the Holy Spirit works in us to secure us in the victory which Christ has won for us. So first, I want to show you how the Spirit equips believers to fight in a war of desires. He equips us to fight in a war of desires. Secondly, we see that the Spirit bears evident fruit in us. He bears evident fruit in us. Finally, we'll look at how the Spirit assures us of the victory of Christ's cross. We'll see how the Spirit assures us of the victory of Christ's cross. So first I want to begin by looking at how the Spirit equips us to fight in a war of desires. Jesus makes everyone who believes in him part of a free people. He makes us a free people. We are free in the fullest, deepest sense of freedom. We are free from slavery to sin. We are free from death. We are free from the demands of the law. We are free to live in him, for him, and in his kingdom. We are free to live with right desires, with hearts that are soft towards him. In verse 13, Paul instructed us, For you are called to freedom, brothers, and that includes sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Why do you think that Paul found it necessary to remind the Galatian believers not to use the freedom that Jesus had purchased for them as an opportunity to satisfy old ways. 
Why do you think he needed to do that? Well, that's not a difficult question for anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time. Because we all know that while Christ has set us free from the tyranny of sin and the judgment of the law, that they no longer rule over us, there's still a part of the old self that remains in us. Old habits and old desires die hard. And and though the victory of Christ over sin and the lawlessness uh, and, and lawlessness has, has been won, we're, we know that we're all still engaged in a conflict that rages within us. It's like those days when you go out and the sun is rising and it's glorious and it's shining. It Maybe even it's, it's like 10, 11 o'clock in the morning and it's a beautiful day, but then you look over to the other side of the sky and the moon is still hanging there hanging, visible for all to see. It's full-on daylight, but there's the moon, the ruler of the night, still standing there. It's fading, but it's there trying to say, hey, I'm still here. I'm still raging against the sun here. Although Christ has dawned in the heart of every believer, though God has declared His people to be righteous and justified in His sight because of the work of Jesus on the cross, Sin and its desires are still hanging on. They're still present within each and every one of us. We are still in the process of being transformed to be more like Christ. The flesh is is still there, hungry, active, always trying to weasel its way back into power. At times it feels oppressive, as if it is winning. And as followers of Christ who have joined Christ on the path of the cross, we must understand that we have been called not just to live in the victory that Christ has, 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 has secured for us, but rather that we've been also called into battle with him against the flesh and against its desires. There's an active role we're called to play in this. Now this can be a great and terrible struggle. We may wonder why, if the work of Christ for us was so definite, why do we still struggle the way that we do against this, this, this terrible and ancient foe? Why do we have, still have to fight? Why doesn't God just perfect us here and now? Who wouldn't want that? Uh, if there's a line for that, I'll stand in that one all day. That would be very convenient. But just as diamonds and precious stones are created under immense heat and with great pressure, so God perfects his people in the heat of battle, rooting out every wicked impulse, replacing them with jewels of grace and the glory of Christ. If we are to be one with Christ, we won't get it, we won't be one with him by just watching him do what he does. We've been called to endure with him. We've been called to join him. We've been called to be on the path of the cross, to to take up a cross and to follow him. And so even while a traveler yearns to be at a journey's end, safe in his home, surrounded by his friends and family, we know that he must walk the path to get there, and so must we. Our focus this morning is not on why we must endure. That's a topic for another day. But our, top, our, our focus this morning is to look really at how we must endure. And Paul answers that for us here in verse 16. He says very simply, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We, 
prevail, Paul says, in this fight when we function according to the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now there are a couple of things to notice about Paul's instruction here and about the, the struggle that we're called to be involved and engaged in. Notice first that this struggle goes deeper than merely our outer, outward actions. It's a conflict of the heart, a conflict that involves our very desires, our will, our conscience, every fiber of who we are. This is a conflict that involves the very fountain from which every action flows. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demonstrated to the crowds that God judges more than just what we do. He weighs our very thoughts and our very intentions. He weighs our hearts. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says that out of the mouth, that the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart, which is to say that what we do, what we say, what we think is all a reflection of the deepest level of who we are. God's judgment is pure. And he has made his judgment very clear. In Proverbs chapter 20, 21, verse 2, he announces that every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Romans 3, verses the second, the second part of verse 22 and then on into 23 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in our natural state, we are not only incapable of producing righteous acts, acts that are fitting and uh, acceptable in God's sight, but that we are actually incapable of maintaining righteous desires, which is why our actions are so unfitting before God. We are all born spiritually dead. We are born rebels against God, just as Ephesians 2 explains. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of this power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Notice Paul leaves no one out there, neither Jew nor Gentile, worldly or churchgoer. Everyone has the same point of origin, death in sin. The freedom that Jesus has secured for his people, the freedom that we have been looking at over the past few weeks, is not merely a freedom from the consequences of sin, but a freedom from the tyranny and the rule of sin and from the desires that come from a heart that is bound to it. The will of our hearts is bound to sins with chains that no amount of human works can break. It takes a divine work. It takes the work that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God declares beforehand, that his great work of liberation would extend not just to redeeming our actions, but to redeeming us in the deepest recesses of who we are. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
a heart that is soft towards God. And then I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. We see in the Old Testament when God was bringing the nation of Israel out of Egypt that Moses records how God led them out going before the people with an invisible pillar of smoke during the day and as a pillar of fire at night so that they would not lose their way. In the New Covenant, God has said that He will lead His people not with visible displays, a a smoke or fire that goes before us, uh, that is away from us, but rather as putting His own Spirit within us, causing us then to walk in obedience to Him. That's why God calls this a new and better covenant in Jeremiah 31.31. So not only has God redeemed us from slavery to sin, but He has given us new hearts with new desires. That work, according to the New Testament, has been fulfilled in and through the cross of Christ. And God effects that work even now in believers through the power of His Holy Spirit. That does not mean that believers are free from sin and its sinful desires completely. But whereas the desires of the flesh used to reign freely over us, they do no longer. There is now a conflict in every believer which rages between the desires of our old man, the flesh, and the desires of the Holy Spirit as he works in us throughout our life to sanctify us, to to make us holy, to transform us into the image of Christ. Uh, That process is, it it takes a lifetime. And And God does it in different stages in different people's lives. But there's always a progression of growth into that grace. One of the significant distinguishing marks of a faith that is true, a real faith in a person, is that they go from loving their sin to having a distaste for it. They don't, I don't mean by saying that that a person just feels guilty about sin. Many people feel guilty about sin. What I'm saying is that they actually come to hate their sin. And their desire is to be rid of anything and everything which gets in the way of knowing, loving, and obeying God. They don't look at God's commands as a burdensome thing. They look at it as the very path of life. Their desire then is to be rid of sin and to live a life of righteousness and faith. And that thing, that sort of life, is not a natural thing. Because as we've discussed already, naturally, we're opposed to God. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you have this conflict raging in you, this conflict of desires, that's actually a good thing. That is evidence that the Spirit is at work in you. And that should encourage you. Because we know that Christ has won and that his victory in our lives will one day be complete. You should be much more concerned if you don't have a conflict with sin. Because that is evidence that you have a calloused heart. The second thing we need to see about these opening statements Paul makes in this passage and about the Spirit's work is we see that the Spirit wins by equipping us with greater desires in the victory of Christ. The Spirit wins by giving us better desires. There is no peace between the fallen desires of the flesh for sin and the holy desires of the Spirit 
who is at work in believers. Just as light rages against darkness and chases it away, so the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of those who have been joined to Christ by faith. The Holy Spirit is like fresh, clean air chasing out toxic fumes. He is the life breath of our lives. In verse 17, Paul says that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Holy Spirit are at war with each other. Uh, The purpose of the flesh, that old nature of sin, that old nature that we are all born with under Adam, wants to prevent us from following after the desires of the Spirit. Whereas the Spirit wants to prevent us from following after those old sinful desires so that we will then live according to the freedom which we have in Christ. The good news of this, though, is that even as they strive against each other, these are not equally matched opponents. One is clearly stronger than the other. The clear promise of these verses is that those fleshly desires, those things that used to rule us, have lost their effectiveness. You'll notice here that Paul does not say, walk by the Spirit and you might not gratify the desires of the flesh. No, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see the the difference there? One is merely a possibility, and one is a settled result. Now, as we read that, we're thinking to ourselves, but Paul, don't you know my struggle? You yourself struggle with sin. How can you say that? I mean, we all fail in Christ. We all fail on this walk. We're all led astray at times. We're all still growing in maturity, and we all still find sin appealing. Well, he can say this because the promise doesn't depend ultimately on us. It depends on the victory which Jesus has won for us. That is the thing which keeps this command to walk by the, and walk in and by the Spirit from becoming an unbearable burden. That feature is that this victory in this struggle over our desires doesn't ultimately belong to us. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for God just to lay out a law and say, hey guys, here it is, go walk on it. We would fail. That's not what Paul is saying. We live by the direction of the Spirit. This is what Paul is getting at here in verse 18 when he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The difference between the demands of the law and the gift of the gospel of grace is that while the law commends holiness to us, it cannot, it has no power to make us righteous. Whereas the gospel of grace announces to us that Christ has died for us and saved us and that it equips us for the journey. Most of this letter has been dedicated to addressing this idea that we have to earn our righteousness for ourselves through doing good works, specifically in the context of this, by keeping the commands of the Mosaic Law. But Paul has shown that Christ came to fulfill the law, and in so doing, he has inaugurated a new age with a new covenant. The hallmark of that new covenant foretold in passages which we I read for you from Ezekiel 36 and then from Jeremiah 31 is that God promised to give his people new hearts and a new spirit. God promised not to just dwell with his people but to dwell in his people. 
that promise has become a reality. And it became a reality when Jesus conquered on the cross. So when Paul says that those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law, he's not just saying that we don't answer to the law. He's saying that we're a part of this new age in Christ. You can see why that would matter so much for the Galatians who are being tempted towards the old ways under the rule of the law. The law has no power to make us free from the desires of the flesh. The answer to being free from sin isn't to keep a list of rules. It's to appeal to the cross of Christ and to live by the Spirit who is actively working in us to give us right desires. So Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit, meaning that we're meant to live by the direction and the leadership of the Spirit as He's living in us. The way of the Spirit, Paul has already shown, is the way of freedom and love in Christ. Paul is not saying that we should take our direction from every whim and every fancy as if the Spirit is mystically trying to direct us with thoughts and feelings through every decision. Living by the Spirit is much deeper than that. It means living under the rule and the reign of Christ with a heart that beats to the tempo of the gospel of grace. It's it's living a life that bears the fruit that Paul talks about in verse 22. It's being eager to please God because it's our delight to do so. Living a life that's led by the Spirit means giving in to the desires of the Spirit as opposed to gratifying the desires of the flesh. Now, what's that actually mean? Isn't that, that's the big question we all come uh, to verse 16 with, right? Paul just lays one command out there and says, walk by the Spirit. And we say, that's really nice, Paul. What does that mean? Well, Paul assumes here that we already have an, a working understanding of what this means based on what he's already said in this letter. It's not as if he takes a moment to define what he means. So we need to look a little bit broader to understand exactly what he's talking about. Life in the Spirit is life, first and foremost, in the victory of Christ. And there are three things that characterize a life that's lived in the victory of Christ. I want to lay these out for you. So if you're looking for three helpful answers for what it means to walk in the Spirit, write these down. First, we walk by the Spirit when we live by faith in the Son of God. First and foremost... There is not one person who can come to Christ apart from the power of the Spirit. So if you are a believer in Christ, you have confidence to know that the Spirit is at work in you. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, remember what Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. We live, we walk by the Spirit, first and foremost, by living in faith in the Son of God. The second way that we walk by the Spirit is that we live by the desires of the Spirit. We live by the desires of the Spirit. Verse 17 shows us that the the desires of the Spirit are opposed to the flesh. So when we adopt the Spirit's priorities as our own, when our delight is in God and not in our flesh, those desires will push out the old desires that we once had. The best way to avoid caving in to the desires of the flesh which used to rule over us is not just by trying to not have them, 
but actually by flushing them out of our hearts, filling our hearts for the desires of the Spirit instead, choosing to love and to value what He loves and values. The third way that we walk by the Spirit is that we listen to the direction of the Spirit. We listen to the direction of the Spirit. That means that we submit ourselves to the Word of God. Friends, you cannot live by the Spirit apart from the Word of God. Christianity is not a mystic's religion. God has made clear and plain His priorities, His desires, and His direction in one place, in His Word. A Word that is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. As Christians, as this church, we prize the Holy Scriptures, not just because we get a kick out of old writings, but because we truly believe that this is the Word that God gave to us, which He has preserved throughout the ages with faithful men who have preached it and taught it and preserved it and written it down. The historical record reflects that reality. There is not a writing in the world which is better attested than the Bible. God's fingerprints are all over it. Knowing then, as 2 Peter 1 verses 21 and 21 say, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, we trust this written word to be the continual, active word of God, which is meant to direct our lives. Furthermore, we understand and have experienced firsthand how this word is living and active because we've been convicted by it, compelled by it. We have seen truth in it, and we have learned that this is a a right and trustworthy foundation with which we can live our lives. God works powerfully through the ministry of his word. Why else would you sit here in a sweltering cafeteria to listen to me talk for an hour? It's because you trust the Word to speak. And there's a part of you that wants that, even as a part of you wants to be home in a more comfortable house. That is why we put so much effort into each Sunday to listening to this Word. That's why we meditate on it throughout the week. If you want to live by the Spirit, live first and foremost by His Word. The leadership of the Spirit in a person is a, it's really a mysterious and wonderful thing But the fruit of a life that is being led by the Spirit is very easy to recognize. And that's what we want to see in our second point in how the Spirit equips us for this fight. We see that the Spirit testifies to us about this reality of the victory by bearing evident fruit in us. He bears evident fruit in us. Let me ask you this profound question. How do you know whether or not a tree is an apple tree? It bears apples. How do you know whether a tree is a cherry tree? It bears cherries. How do you know a tree is an aspen tree? You know it by the way it is. You know a tree by its fruits. And in the same way you know a tree by its fruits, you know what has mastery over, over a person by the fruit of their life. In verses 19 through 22, Paul indicates that our actions indicate whether we are living according to the desires of the flesh, under the rule of the old man, or in step with the Holy Spirit. He begins with the evidences of the flesh. 
In verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. So it doesn't take a PhD to know what these are. It doesn't require special knowledge, insight, or understanding to understand this, or to be able to look at something and say, that is of the flesh. A little discernment will recognize that these things flow from the desires of the flesh, those desires which are opposed, which hate God. And then he provides us here with a list. These are works, these are the works of the flesh that Paul describes. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then just in case you had another one that you think is exempt and things like these. Now, we know from that last statement that this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. Paul isn't giving you a checklist which if you avoid these things, you're good. Rather, he's giving us a, a snapshot of some of the evil things that come when we're living subject to the, the, to the desires that ruled us apart from Christ. Now, there's a lot of intentional overlap here. And because this is not intended to be an exhaustive list, and because you don't want this to be a four-hour sermon, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over the particular nuances of each one of these works. When we examine this list of vices, though, we see that it breaks down into about three categories. First, we see sexual sin. Second, we see a rejection of God and His goodness to worship other things and to be satisfied in other things. And finally, we see an exhaustive list of social sins, or a long list, not exhaustive, uh, but long. The common thread of each of these categories of sin and of the the works of the flesh, as Paul calls them, is that they flow first and foremost from a heart of selfishness, a heart of pride, and a heart of self-expression which are opposed to the moral standards of God, which he has laid out in his word. Sexual sin perverts the good gift of intimacy which God gave to be experienced and celebrated between one man and one woman within the context of the covenant of marriage. And it perverts that into something that is fundamentally selfish, objective, and prideful. Idolatry and sorcery might seem a little far-fetched as far as being a, a, a relevant idea for our modern society. But when you look at our community, when you look at our nation, you will see that we worship money, that we worship power, that we worship prestige, that we worship our reputations, that we seek to exercise control over our lives through different tools thinking that we can actually create the reality we want rather than relying on, the, on our resource and, and through using those things rather than relying on God and enjoying Him for who He is. Selfishness and pride drives us to value our, our rights and our preferences over the good of others so that we war with each other, we rage at each other, we seek to have our own way even when it comes to the cost of someone else. Our media and our culture celebrates and normalizes these things so that people feel good about doing them. You will fit into the world if you do these things. If you want to know how you can live a comfortable life in the world, this is it. If you follow this list, 
you might even be celebrated. I woke up Tuesday morning uh, to, to Facebook blasting in my face the reality that it's Pride Month and I can't go anywhere without seeing an ad for it. And friends, it is just that. It is pride in a fleshly desire that flaunts itself against God's right and good commands. This is a concerted effort not only to gain acceptance or tolerance, but to be celebrated. But be warned, friends, there are consequences to these desires. The works of the flesh are evident, Paul says, and those who live according to the flesh, those who are at peace with it, those who are given into it, who have no quarrel with it, will be judged for it. In verse, the second part of verse 21, Paul says, I warn you, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Instead, they will reap corruption, we see in chapter 6, verse 8. Jesus came to free us from the tyranny of sin. Do not think that you can maintain friendship with the world and the desires that Jesus came to set us free from and that you can maintain that in friendship with the kingdom of Christ and its desires. They are at war with each other and their desire is to keep you from doing the other thing. One day, Jesus says, he will judge the world. A day of reckoning will come, as we heard from Justin this morning, and those who are at peace with the flesh and are following his desires will not gain entrance into his kingdom. You are warned. It's a heavy thing. This is a month of grief for the church. Because we love not the world, but we love those whom Christ gave his life to save. And the most unbearable thing is to see someone shake their fist in the face of the crucified Savior, knowing that one day they will answer for that. If pride drives, if the Pride Month celebration drives you only to anger and not to grief, you are not focused on the gospel. Grieve it, rage against it, and remember the grace of God. And the works of the flesh are very different than what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. Notice he calls them two different things. In verse 22 he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Friends, Scripture memory will serve you well. You will do better to memorize the fruit of the Spirit than to try to parse out the works of the flesh. Because the fruit of the Spirit will guard you against the works of the flesh. Commit these things to memory. They will guard you. They will guide you. They are the litmus test for whether or not you should do something. There should be the desires of your heart. As we read this, we see this list stands out in stark contrast to Paul's list of vices, those things that are produced by the flesh and its desires, aren't they? 
First, notice that while Paul describes the works of the flesh, he labels this second list as the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that is important. Fruit here is singular, which gives the impression that these are all things which are meant to be found in the believer's life. But more importantly, Paul is saying that these aren't deeds that we're supposed to achieve through our own efforts. He doesn't call these the works of the Spirit. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. They are the result of the Spirit's work in us. Not something we can take credit for. Our righteousness is not something we can claim to have achieved on our own ability. It is a gift. And so it stands that the righteousness in our lives, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is something that is also produced in us as we walk according to the direction of the Holy Spirit. This takes us back to chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, when Paul asked the Galatians, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? No, no, no. We are perfected by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit isn't a matter of mustering up enough love, joy, peace, patience, etc. It's not about that. It's about living under the guidance and the direction of the Spirit who works in us to produce those things. This is part of what convinces me of the genuineness of the Christian faith. When I believed in Christ... Something changed in me. I don't even know if I completely understood what that, ch- what that change was. All I know, all I knew in that moment is the desires of my heart had fundamentally changed. Now, I was saved at a young age, so not that much of my actions changed, but the motive of why I did those things absolutely did. Where I was holding on to things as, I, I still want that, Jesus. Like things like my possessions, like, like my own free expression, like my time, my money, my future. All of those things where I had been holding those for myself, now in that moment all I wanted was to know Christ. I felt drawn to Him and I believed what He said in His Word and that then brought fruit out in me. If I only had my life and my experience to go on, I would expect you to be skeptical. I might even be skeptical about it, but without fail, that is the same experience I hear from other professing believers. Uh, One of the unique joys I get to do as a pastor is do your membership interviews. And one of my favorite parts of every process in that is getting to hear people talk about the changes that occurred in them uh, when they first came to faith. How they were living after the desires of their own hearts. And then finally when they believed the gospel and came came under the kingship of Jesus, things changed. And they didn't want the same things for the same reasons. Yeah, they still struggled with sins. But it was different. And they knew it. It's incredible. No other message does that. No other message is equipped with the Spirit. The works of the flesh are evident, and so is the fruit of the Spirit. The good news about this is that God has not left us guessing as to whether or not we might be saved. In the second part of verse 23, Paul makes this little statement. Against such things there is no law. Now that could mean that there are no laws against love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Which is true in a general sense. 
But given the rest of Paul's discussion of the law in this, this letter, I'm inclined to think rather that he's making a statement similar to what he said back in verse 14 when he said that the whole law is fulfilled in loving one's neighbor as oneself. Those who are set free by Christ from the law are, are free because he has fulfilled it. And we fulfill the law when we live in the freedom of Christ, bearing the fruit of the Spirit according to the, gra- the grace that is within us. When we live according to the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, the law does not condemn us. Indeed, it cannot, because Christ has rescued us from that. We are living now according to the rule of Christ as his free people. The Spirit confirms the truth of the gospel and our freedom from the law to us through these evident fruits. In 1 Corinthians 1, 22, uh, Paul actually credits the Holy Spirit with his work uh, in, in us as the very seal, as the guarantee to us that God's promises in Christ are true. And I think that this fruit, which Paul is describing here, which is produced by the Holy Spirit, is part of that guarantee. We all struggle with the desires of the flesh. No, no believer in here is perfect. We all struggle with different sins and in different degrees. Sometimes the fruit of the Spirit is less evident in our lives than in others, and it drives us to some shame. But let us draw confidence in this, that our hope and our assurance is in Christ. And if the fruit of the Spirit is being borne out in us, and the hope and confession of our faith is in Him, we can fight on, assured that He who is able to keep us and to perfect us will do so. And let, us, let that drive us forward to live by the Spirit. So the Spirit equips us for this fight by giving us evident fruits as a testimony of His work in us. And finally, He assures us of Christ's victory on the cross. Now, in case you're getting a little antsy, this is my shortest point. It's also one of the most important ones. In verse 24, we get the answer for why the desires of the flesh are on decline and why the desires of the Spirit, the Spirit, are assuredly victorious. The victory belongs not to your efforts, but to the objective work of Jesus and the new identity that is ours in Him. Paul says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. One of the most fundamental differences between a person who belongs to Christ and a person who remains Christ's enemy is that a person who belongs to Christ is against their flesh and they are against their sin. They maintain a hatred for it so that at every turn, at every moment, they seek to kill it. I have long resonated with John Owen's wise exhortation that we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. Paul says that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Now that is a striking image, isn't it? But it's appropriate since the means which Christ delivered us from our sin is through his cross and through his resurrection. 1 Peter 2.24 explains that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. That is the reason why we have any hope. By his wounds you have been healed. This crucifixion of the flesh has a date and a time stamped stamped on it. It happened on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem, 33 AD. That's when it happened. That is a very freeing reality to live in, isn't it? The victory that set us free isn't still up in the air. It's done. It's accomplished. And while the fight feels at times as if it could go either way, we know how the battle goes in the end. Because our king has conquered. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against him, and it cannot prevail against his bride, the church. The victory has already been declared. Now Paul talks about this crucifixion in a way that is past tense, so he locates it in the cross of Christ. But he also indicates that it's an active thing, that we are crucifying the flesh with its passions and its desires. Luther has a quote where he explains that the metal of a soldier is tested and that he runs not to any one part of the line of battle, but that he runs to where the battle rages hottest. A true soldier runs to where the conflict is. If you run to a border that's not under attack and you ignore the one that is, what good are you? We have to ask ourselves that. The issue that will define the church for the next 50 to 100 years is an issue that is raging right now. And it is highlighted in that this is the first Sunday in the month of June which has been commandeered by people and is being celebrated as Pride Month. I was telling Ellie on the way over here that there may be no consequences for this sermon. And there very well may be consequences for this sermon. And I want you to know that the church is called to run to where the battle is hottest. I will not be a fitting pastor if I'm not showing you where that is. So let it be clear, this is not an issue that the church can ignore. And the time to speak is now. And the consequences of those actions are up to God. But we have been called to be faithful servants of King Jesus. To live with true love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and self-control. What is it to us if we lose everything in this world for the kingdom? nothing. It is good news to know that we have already died. We died 33 AD. The flesh has been crucified. It has no hold over us. And there are real believers out there who are struggling with real fleshly desires for each other. I have spent time with them. I have seen how they are in agony. And brothers and sisters, we must endure with them. We must show the love of Christ to them. 
The answer to this movement is not hatred. That is of the flesh. The answer to this is a righteous love that refuses to compromise because it loves Christ too much. Because eternity is a long time and heaven is too great and hell is too awful not to speak the truth. There are consequences for what we believe. But it is nothing to the person who has found satisfaction in Christ, is it? So let us proceed as a church recognizing maybe wrath poured out on this. But it's nothing compared to the wrath that fell on Christ who gave himself for us and who loved us. And let us stand for truth and love and let us bear the fruit of the Spirit as we engage the works of the flesh. Sin is a lethal thing. The desires of the flesh for sin are a powerful force. But because of the work of Christ for us, we can live in true freedom according to His desires, putting to death those old ways. Freedom is possible because Christ has made it so. Praise be to God for that. Bless His holy name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even as we have heard your word, it's cost us some sweat. And it's a good thing. You call us to a cross. The cross which you have already carried. And so you say that your burden, your yoke, is light for us. And indeed it is. Because we are fueled to live and to walk in the Spirit. Because of what you've done for us. Father, give us boldness. Give us the right words. Help us to speak your truth. Help us to stand and to speak the gospel as is right for us to do. And let us not love family, nor homes, nor possessions, nor reputation more than Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.